the Torah's one static work, extended over millennia, a block Torah in four dimensions. Some part of her is always radical and always relevant. Worldly philosophies crash like flaming meteors into her surface, illuminate some deep cavern, and gutter out. We just read recently in our daily study of Tanya, after restarting the work, the famous line at the very beginning of chapter 2, where the Alter Rebbe writes that the godly soul, the second soul in Israel, is a chelek eleika mimal mamish, a part of God above, literally. The Alter Rebbe did not invent this concept that the soul is a piece of God, and in fact it's found in both the revealed and the concealed Torah. The Kabbalah Sefer Shefatal discusses it at length. It's mentioned by both the Maharsha and the Malbim. The Ramak says it, the Reishas Chachma says it. But the Alter Rebbe took it, he made it the central plank of his Hasidic philosophy a founding principle of his entire work. This is one of the very first things you have to know if you're going to study Hasidus. Now the obvious question that every student of Tanya asks is, how can there be a piece of God? Is God not one? Is he not infinite and absolutely simple? And of course, at that part of the Tanya class, the mashpir, the teacher, will smile, and he will either say there is an explanation, or he will give the explanation. And there are, of course, there's, there's explanations, you know, the, the, even though the soul separates into its own being, it's still godly in its very nature. When you hold a piece of the essence of a thing, of the thing itself, then you hold the entire thing, you know. Every part of the apple is just as much apple as every other part of the apple. So too every soul, even though it's a different part with a different precise nature, nevertheless it still in its nature reflects that divine self. There's explanations. But the truth is that in Judaism and other parts of the Torah, we find other explanations for Jewish identity. Even if there is this idea that the soul is a piece of God, it doesn't become the foundation for an entire worldview. It doesn't become the very basis of Jewish identity, you know. We don't say if you have this piece of God, you're Jewish, and if you don't, you're not the way the Alter Rebbe divides things up at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 of Tanya. Other parts of the Torah say that Jewish identity is something more akin to ideological commitment. Anyone who is a heretic toward idol worship is called a Jew. Or it's an idea of behavioral commitment. A Jew is expected to behave in certain ways. And if you don't behave in those ways, you're contradicting your own Judaism to an extent. Really, elsewhere, we see that Judaism is a function of not ideology or behavior, but of blood, blood ties. Judaism is decided by uh, your family, by the mother specifically. And of course, there's an idea of 
Judaism as a function of communal acceptance, that a Jew functions as one part of the broader Jewish community, as a as an aspect of the body Judaic, which has the ability to some extent to reject the Jew the way a body can reject an organ transplant. But Hasidus bases Jewish identity around this idea of a Jewish soul. Hasidus is here to rescue the Jewish people from their slumber. Hasidus is the Jew's own name whispered in his ear to wake him up from the slumber of exile. And when we want to wake the Jew up, when we want to rescue him from the dreamlike deceptions and contradictions of this long, dark, confused exile, we wake him up with the idea that he has a piece of God within him. Now, the Torah is never particularly cool. It's never in line with the fads of the day. But on the other hand, it always speaks to our generation, our problems. You learn something in Torah, see no particular application, but you file it away and say, maybe one day I'll understand the relevance of this idea, the way in which it's actually important. And each and every day, this idea of the chelech aleikam imal, of the part of God above, is rendered more and more prescient, more and more brilliant, more and more wise by the happenings of the day. Christian politicians say that they're more Jewish than actual Jews, and religious Jews cheer them on in agreement to some kind of ideological end. On the other side of the aisle, you have certain other Jews saying that uh, anti-Zionist Palestinians are more Jewish than certain other Jews. And there's a whole cohort of Jews who cheer that on. And the sad fact becomes clear that Jewish identity, if it is merely religious or ideological or ritualistic or even familial or even communal, it becomes a toy of the world. It becomes another pawn in the games of the world for people to play with, to be defined in the world's terms. The way of the world is that if you, if you tell it what's most important to a person, if you tell them the person's deepest allegiances, the things that they care about most deeply, the world's response is, well, how can I manipulate that? What system does that fit into? And how can I play that system or use that system to my advantage? This is not a cynical reading of the world. This is inherent to worldly wisdom, as we've discussed in this space before. That's the system of yesh. That's the system of tachbulos. That's the system in which 
everything has a finite nature, a nature that the mind can understand. And if it can be understood, it can be understood in context of other natures. And you can see how those natures fit together. And you can begin to manipulate, you can begin to uh, poke here and prod there and redefine this and recontextualize that. And all of a sudden, Jewish identity becomes another thing that you can use uh, for your cause, to your own personal benefit or your own personal detriment. The world wants more than anything else to say that a Jew is defined by the world. This is the first Rashi on Chumash. Rashi says that the nations will come and say, Listim atem, you are thieves, you've stolen the land. In other words, if you Jews think that you have a piece of our world, our world of uh, worldly definitions, our mundane, ungodly reality, then you must be lying, because the Jews are meant to be the chosen people of God. The world points out the tension between the Jews' alleged divine nature and the Jews' involvement in worldly affairs. And the world says this is a contradiction. It says, if George Soros wants to donate any money to politics, or if the Jews want to have a state that has a Knesset, either way, those Jews' Judaism is going to have to be defined on worldly terms. It's going to have to be defined by what they believe and what they do and their politics, and their allegiances, and the tribes to which they belong. Hasidus cuts through this thicket. It cut through it right from the beginning. It said that if a Jew is going to make his or her way through this world, and not become totally worldly, not become totally corrupted by the world, not become defined by the world, then the Jew has to realize that they are Jewish by dint of God, not by dint of themselves or their own understanding. How can godliness be removed from a single Jew? And the answer is, no one can remove God. How can God be corrupted? The question answers itself. How can a godly soul be reversed or undone? The question is an absurdity. You know, the Fidika Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz, of Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, was once asked by one of his daughters, how we know that angels exist. After all, no one's ever seen one, right? Angel is not an object of our day-to-day -day experience. The Fidika Rebbe replied to her as follows. They were riding in a, in a wagon or a carriage at the time. And he told her, We're riding in the carriage and having a discussion about angels. And to us, that's the purpose of this ride. We're fulfilling the purpose of riding together in this carriage right now by using this time and this opportunity to discuss uh, matters of metaphysics, deep godly concepts. 
but the horses that pull the carriage, they don't think the point of this ride is for divine concepts. They think the point of this ride is so that they can make it back to the stable and eat oats. And the driver of this wagon, he thinks that the purpose of this drive is so that he can make a living and get back to his family. So there are three different perspectives on a single carriage ride. There's us, there's the horses, and there's the wagon driver. Now tell me, the Rebbe asked his daughter, just because the horses are thinking about oats, does that lessen the significance of our discussion about angels?